And that's the core function of marketing. It's to get people to adopt behavior. Don't buy this, buy that. Don't go here, go there. Don't go see his movie, go see my movie. Don't vote for him, vote for her. Everything we do as marketers is to get people to move. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Marcus Collins. He's the architect of some of the most famous ad campaigns of the last decade. And today he puts forward a clear case that the most powerful vehicle for influencing behavior is culture. He's the recipient of advertising ages 40 under 40. He's most recently been recognized by Thinkers 50 among their class of 2023. They're 30 thinkers with ideas most likely to shape the future. The campaigns he's been part of include some work for Google, the Made in America Music Festival, the Brooklyn Nets, and he's also worked at Apple and worked with Nike. Before Nike, he ran Beyonce's digital strategy. He holds a doctorate in marketing from Temple University, and now he is a professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. Before he went to be a professor, he had a stint as the head of strategy at Wyden Kennedy, New York, who which is where he did the work for Apple. They were and are still Apple's agency of record. Fantastic conversation. We pick out some of the stories from his book. His book's called For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. And we talk about how you can take the world of advertising where over several decades, people have honed their ability to get people to do things that they didn't necessarily think they wanted to do, whether that's buy an iPod, or support the Brooklyn Nets, or go to a music festival, whatever it might be. And how, because this is about moving people, how all of those tools and the knowledge that has been garnered by the advertising industry can be applied in churches or whatever organizations to get people to move, and also down to individual leaders. What can we do to build a culture? What are the elements of culture? What make people behave the same way as another person? How do you make things attractive to people so that they want to move? Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll find it enlightening and fantastic book as well. Great read. Enjoy. Hey, my name is Marcus Collins. I'm the professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, author of the book For the Culture. Your book on culture is different to other books on culture that I've read, and I've read a few. Why did you write it? What made you feel like you were filling a hole? As a marketer, I would often hear the word, we need to get our idea into culture. I would hear the words, we need to understand culture. We need to have our ideas informed by culture. 
culture, 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 culture. And quite frankly, for a long time, I was a part of that refrain. But I realized if you ask five people to define culture, you get 35 different answers. And that's a problem. So pragmatically, I thought the more we have a better understanding of the language we use, the more enabled we be, the more capable we be to leverage and harness its power. And for culture, that's extremely important because there's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And the better we understand it, the better able to talk about it, the better Rosetta Stone we have to describe it, to articulate it, the more enabled we'd be to leverage it. And that's not only important for marketers, but I say that's for anyone with the vested interest in getting people to move, be it managers, leaders, entrepreneurs, politicians, clergy, and anyone of the sort. And that felt like a really powerful idea to explore. But more importantly, I thought it could be really meaningful to help people level up in their career ambitions or even their day-to-day life. Fantastic. And the book's got a talks, I suppose, from a marketing perspective. And you've got some great examples of work that you have been involved in. So I was at the cinema. I've got two, two daughters. And so they made me take them to see Barbie. Mm-hmm. And as I was sitting in the cinema, there was an ad for McDonald's, which is one of the sort of examples you've got at the sort of back end of the book. Is that sort of certainly over here at the cinema, there was this sort of eyebrows raise, you know, people looking at each other and putting their eyebrows up as a, like, let's go to McDonald's sign. Now, was that part of the work that you did whilst you were working on that account or was that the latest team? Yeah, so that ad was done by the team, the UK-based team, the agency in London, which we didn't we didn't work on. It's the same players, if you will, from the global part of McDonald's, but that particular part of the business we didn't we didn't touch. Okay, so I just thought that was a great example of you know in the book you talk about McDonald's sort of being on the back foot versus being on the front foot and taking the people that love a McDonald's versus trying to turn around the people who hate them. The haters are still going to hate you, right? But I saw that ad in the cinema and I was reading the book at the weekend and I just thought that was a great example where, an example of doing things in culture, people would start to raise their eyebrows at each other in a traffic jam and pull off and go to McDonald's. I just thought that was a great example of putting it in culture. It's a signal of what could be a social norm among fans, right? Yeah. Maybe that's the case in in London, not so much here as far as social norms, but however, that ad worked well in the States too. Ah, okay. Which says to me that when people see it, it resonates. There's some truth in there, whether it's aspired truth or uh, at a macro level that there's an unwritten rule, there's unwritten language that we can signal to each other about what we do together when things are as salient as let's go to McDonald's. One of the other examples in the book is Was Up, which is great because I got all the cultural background from the book. So never saw those ads. Having worked in the UK and, and run the UK subsidiary of some North American companies, you know, there were many times when my colleagues would say Was Up to me as if I knew what they were talking about. <laughs> and you'd go, I don't know what they're talking about. So I'm going to have to go on Google and find this out because without the cultural background, it doesn't resonate. So That's right. That's right. And the thing about culture is culture is about shared meaning. It's that, you know, we can talk in a way that has shorthand, that has short code, and that you understand the context. Or we can behave in a way where you understand the frame or the artifacts that we've done has meaning from a structural perspective that we go, oh, I, I know what he's doing here. I know what she's doing here. I know what she's trying to say. And culture helps us establish these expectations 
for how we work together, how we live together, how we navigate life together. I think that's really, really powerful. Um, not only when it comes to consumption, but also our social organizations, be it work, be it religion, be it uh, sports, and even you know society at large. And so when you were writing the book, what was the thing that you found that you didn't know that fascinated you the most? Because you must have done a load of research and found stuff out and gone, ah, oh, I, I mean, either that you didn't know or where you thought something was true and you found it was or wasn't. What, what did the research show up? So here's the most humbling part. In writing the book, I realized just how influenced by culture I've been. <laughs> Even someone who studies this thing and feels like, you know, feel like it, but I would fancy myself as having a really sharp, keen understanding of the space and can identify when these things are at play. While I was writing the book, especially on the back half of it, once I was getting towards the end of this thing, you know, I realized just how influential culture has been in my life. So I'm from Detroit, born and raised, and I did well in math and science when I was in high school. And in those days, in the 90s, if you did well in math and science and you were black, for sure, you're going to be an engineer. So that's why I studied. Yeah. Study engineering undergrad because those were the expectations of people like me. So I entered material science engineering my freshman year at university, and I didn't like it so much. I thought it was interesting. I just wasn't interested. Uh-huh. So I came back home that summer and said, Mom, Dad, I don't know if I want to be an engineer. And my mother, who's an academic, says, wait until you get into your major. You'll love it. I go, okay, you know, I trust my mom. My dad's like, yeah, listen to your mom. So you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back my, 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 my second year, my sophomore year, and I really don't love this thing. Again, I thought it was fascinating. I just didn't see myself doing it for the rest of my life. So I took some music theory courses to offset my terrible GPA. It's awful. And I fell in love with major sevenths. And I said, oh, this is what I want to do. I mean, I played piano in church and I've been affiliated with music, but never in a really organized way like this, at least from a theoretical perspective. And I said, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a songwriter. So I went home that summer and said, mom and dad, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to write music. And my parents said, you must be on crack because that didn't happen. <laughs> it, was not, it was not great. It was not great. So I ended up finishing my degree in engineering, but I spent all my time in the recording studio working perfecting my craft. When I graduated from undergrad, I went straight to the music industry. And that really was what kicked off my career. Now, here's the interesting part. And this is the, the revelatory part of writing the book, that what I realize now, that back then, I didn't have the language to describe the impasse that I was feeling with my parents. I felt social pressures telling me to do a particular thing because of what was expected of me. But my wants, my desires, my disposition was not in line with those expectations. And I didn't have that language to express that. And my parents who were pushing me to do something, in my mind, I just said, maybe these guys are bugging. Like they don't get it. My parents are just out of, you know, they're just out of touch. And while that's happening, I'm sure my parents were thinking that they're expected to rear their children into a career that has the highest potential of success. Yeah. They were abiding by their own cultural pressures of what they ought to do. And because the cultural systems that we were being influenced by at an impasse, we collectively were at an impasse and we did not have the language to talk about it. And as I was writing this book, I was thinking, wow, I wonder what 20-year-old Marcus would say and do knowing what I know now. Like would my relationship with my parents at that time, which was quite strained, would have been more productive, would have been more nourishing if I had the language to explain what we were experiencing or at least to understand it better. 
And do you have children of your own? I do indeed. How old are they now? I have an eight-year-old, Georgia, and a four-year-old, Ivy. Fab. So when your daughters are 20, it'll be interesting to see whether you whether you think a 20 or 21-year-old is completely capable of making the best life choices and whether you let them make them or not. <laughs> now, here's the interesting part. I, I'm, I'm with you. Like I'm constantly taking inventory when I'm engaging with them, particularly in the things that they do. Yeah, I was a swimmer, uh, very much committed to swimming as, as a kid from six years old to 18. It was a part of my identity. It's definitely what, what I did. And when we first had our kids, I wanted them to be swimmers because that's what I did. Like, and swimming is a great sport and there's all of these things you can learn. And like, I just think it's just such a great organized uh, sport for kids beyond like the normal. It's just, I think it's just a really cool thing to do. And so I've been, with my eldest, when she was born, I was like, we need to get her in the water. We need to get her in lessons. We need to get her on a team. And I was like, oh, Marcus, you have to stop. Like, those are the expectations that I put for myself. Yeah. Like, you know, she is going to see the world differently. And the hope is that she gravitates to it, but it's very likely that she will not. And I have to understand that and be okay with that. Yeah. So even all of us, all of us, we have to do inventory and, and do some course correcting along the way. You see, when you say swimmer to me, I think that's a lot of mornings getting up very early in a pool on your own. And so I immediately think that you have some dedication and some personal grit. Well, those are the inherent characteristics that come from it, yeah. right? Like, you know, swimming, it is a solo sport. And I think that's the paradox is that you're racing people next to you, but they're not your competition. You are your competition. That is your fastest time is your, your competition. So to achieve your fastest time, it takes a tremendous amount of grit, a tremendous amount of perseverance, but also a lot of self-discipline because you don't have a team sort of pushing you to get better. Yeah. I mean, other than the people that that are themselves trying to get better. To me, it's just, it's a really cool metaphor or analogy of how we think about sports as an analogy for, for business. You know, it's sort of meta text there. When I've been building sales team, if I got a CV over my desk and somebody had been a swimmer, it's like, I just know that they're, they're going to graft. You know, <laughs> if they commit to do a thing, they're going to do a thing. That's right. And so just, it's stuff like that. So all this sort of shorthand culture you know, because it's not that I don't necessarily, I don't know, I suppose you could say, does swimming teach you that? Or is it that if you didn't have that temperament inherently, your parents wouldn't have been able to drag you to swimming? Yeah, there's a bit of nature versus nurture, I suppose, in there. I started at such a young age, I didn't have very much agency. You know, my parents were just like, this is what you're going to do. And this, you know, this is what, what we did. And I, I guess I took to it fairly quickly. I mean, I was six years old, so I didn't have my long-term memory wasn't quite established at the time. So I don't remember it like in those earlier, early times, but I do remember it by the time I was around, I'd say eight or nine, actually kind of the age that Georgia is now. I remember those times because that's when I was getting better and we were much more committed to the sport. Like I was on two different teams. So our, our weekends were at swim meets and our summers we're a swim camp and like when we weren't in the school year, we wake up super early in the morning and swim in an ice cold pool, at least it felt like in the summertime. <laughs> that's sort of the ironic part is that you, know, you think about swimming as a summer treat, right? It's like fun. Let's go swimming. Yay. But for me, swimming has always been work. You know, it's like you go in the pool, you, you get to work. And I think that work sort of feels that way too, that some people say, you know, I want my work to be fun and I want my work to be exciting. And I go, yeah, I want, I want the work to do what the work is supposed to do. Help me get better. I know Malcolm Gladwell 
has used this sort of 10,000 hours rule. But certainly I, I found looking at that original study that he references in his book, it fascinating because even the people who were there in the sort of conservatoire, nobody ever enjoyed practice. But the people who practiced the most went on to have the best solo careers. That's right. I mean, practice is painful, you know, and it requires looking at the world with a long view time horizon, realizing that I'm doing today what's going to help me for years later, right? So it's not about the temporal. It's not about right now. It's about what the impact is going to be over time. And I think that that is a signal of character that, you know, you're not solely rewarded by the immediate, by the instant, but you put in the work for the future. And that's what growth and learning is all about. Yeah, I think, and I think in businesses, that's where if an organization, even a team has got a purpose and some sort of mission, that's where people can call on that when it's raining on Thursday evening. That's right. That's right. And nobody cares if you go training or not, except you. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that that is the hook because those are the things that create the bond that is the covalent bonds of culture. It's a shared belief, right? It's that we have a collective understanding of truth. And it's that collective understanding of truth that we have socially negotiated. It's that truth about the world that anchors how we navigate the world. Because the truths that we hold, we tell ourselves stories about the world, ideology about the world that helps us make meaning of it, to make sense of it. And that's what culture is. You know, it's a meaning-making system that helps demarcate who we are and what people like us ought to do. So this idea of shared belief helps us connect with people like ourselves and also creates the guardrails that govern how we show up in the world such that we're able to create expectations on how the world will respond to us. And so how does this, give me an example from the advertising world of that, and then maybe we'll go on and say, how could we use something similar in, in a work environment? And I do, I do like the way you phrase it, which pulls it all together, which is like people who are trying to make other people move. Yeah. Right? Because that, that's like that contextual level where it doesn't matter whether you're, you're getting people to buy something or whether you want people to behave in a particular way. It's that concept of movement. I like that. And that's the core function of marketing. It's to get people to adopt behavior. Don't buy this, buy that. Don't go here, go there. Don't go see his movie, go see my movie. Don't vote for him, vote for her. Everything we do as marketers is to get people to move. And what I argue in the book is that even if you don't have marketer in your title, you're a marketer. You're trying to get people to move. You're trying to get your employees to adopt a policy. You're trying to get your boss to acknowledge your work. You're trying to get your kids to eat peas. <laughs> We're trying to get people to do things at all the time. And culture is the biggest, most powerful, influential force to get people to adopt behavior. And it's anchored in the shared beliefs that we have. So even as you mentioned this idea of, you know, it's the beliefs that they keep us going on when it's cold outside, it's raining, it's dark, and it's just us. And it's like, let's keep moving. That's essentially the ethos of Nike. You know, Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. Big, small, short, tall, able, unable, we're all athletes. And the only thing keeping us from realizing our best athletic self is us. Therefore, we should just do it, right? So Nike is provoking us to realize our best athletic self. And the voice of Nike, as it's been told, it's that person who's under the lamppost, 
when it's cold, it's wet, it's dark, it's 4 a.m., you've motivated yourself to get out of bed and you started that run and it's hurting and it's grueling. It's that person under the lamppost is saying, keep going, Marcus, you can do this. Yeah. That is the brand Nike. And because of how it sees the world, because of how it communicates itself to the world through its voice, it therefore becomes a stand-in, a signifier for what it means to be an athlete. And that's who Nike talks to, athletes. There are people who are not athletes who buy Nike sneakers, but Nike ain't talking to you. No, no, no. Nike's talking to the athlete inside of us, right? And Nike hardly ever talks about value propositions. Nothing about where the leather is sourced. Nothing about how uh, shock absorbent the air bubbles are in the air maxes. None of that stuff. They only talk about a point of view. At least they start with the point of view. Because what we know of human behavior, what we know of the biology of decision-making is that if we're able to evoke emotion, then emotion will have a far greater impact on the possibilities of us adopting behavior. Nobody ever makes a rational decision. Ever, ever. We love to think of ourselves as rational animals, but we're not. We're rationalizing animals. You know, it's like we have the Kirk brain, the Spock brain. And we love to think of ourselves as Spock. Oh, especially the smarter you are, the more successful you are, you're going to know I make data-driven decisions. Well, <laughs> not really. You know, you are way more Kirk than you are Spock, right? We use the data at our disposal to justify the decisions that we make. It's just how we're wired. Those are the heuristics that we are subject to. And even the people who study heuristics and cognitive biases, like the Daniel Kahnemans of the world, who is a Nobel laureate, by the way, he too is subject and victim to these biases. So of course you're going to be if you actually don't think they even exist. Yes, I'm sure you've read Shoe Dog. I thought it was a fabulous, sort of one of the best non-business business books you could read, you know, because it's really the story of Nike. But I came away from that feeling much more positive about the brand than I had before I read the book. And the book isn't, it's sort of almost ancient history now. Yeah, But I felt that sort of the trials and tribulations of starting that business and almost going bust several times, you know, I just, I felt an empathy for the brand that I hadn't felt before I read Shoe Dog. So if you're looking for something to read and you're still on holiday, Shoe Dog's great. That's the power of stories. You know, stories create a structure, they create a frame that we see things through. And that frame, that structure, it impacts us. I mean, this is why Aristotle talks about the poetics. You know, they, it, the things that resonate within us they inspire us to move, to adopt behavior. I've been fortunate enough to have great proximity to Nike. Not only did I work with Nike when I worked at Apple, but also the agency that I most recently worked for, Wine Kennedy, where as a chief strategy officer in New York, Nike is our founding client. So Wine Kennedy created Just Do It, the words Just Do It. So we built our agency on Nike or with Nike because of Phil Knight. And Wine Kennedy is still the agency of record for Nike some 42 years later. And do they, I think this is true, they outsource that at the beginning and continue to outsource that. Oh yeah. Completely different to the way other businesses do, which have a big in-house marketing team and a smaller agency. Yeah. I mean, they have marketing strategists, marketing leaders, marketers at Nike 1000%, but the creative expression of the brand, the voice of the brand, the way the brand shows up through its marketing communications that is delineated to Wyden Kennedy, who's been the partner for Nike for, you know, for decades now. And so when you come in to pick that up, I mean, this is slightly off topic, but I'm just intrigued now. So when you come up and pick up that title of chief strategy officer, 
and you've got all the stuff that's gone before. It's almost a cultural job in itself, isn't it? You've got, there's all the stuff that's gone before and you've got some quite narrow guardrails on how you can express yourself. Like, can you make a difference? Did you make a difference? Yeah, so it's, there's culture on culture on culture. <laughs> that in one sense, there is the inherent cultural context of advertising. Once it gets out into the world, it is produced such that people interpret it and make meaning of it. So it becomes cultural production. Uh, then there's the culture of the agency that works with Nike based on their culture. So it's finding the connection between the two. And then as a practitioner, you say, okay, what new can I bring to this? And this is interesting because I think that, I know that, the Nike strategy has been cracked decades ago. The strategy has been the strategy since that has not changed. <laughs> the idea then is, so if this is the North Star, what does that mean for this context? If this is the North Star, what does it mean for these exogenous shocks to the system that happens outside of our normal day-to-day -day as an organization, as an entity, as an institution? And now what do we do now? And I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, if we were to extrapolate this out of business, it's kind of sort of what like government and politics are about, right? So you think about the constitution here in the States, that's supposed to be the North Star for the country, right? That is the governing strategy for the country. There's laws, of course, but the ethos is sort of what signals what this country is supposed to be all about to guide what we do hundreds of years later. And it's the current administration, the current uh, lawmakers, the current judiciary appointees and electorates that are meant to interpret the strategy within a current contemporary context. So when new things happen, how does these exogenous shocks to the system, how do they marry up to the frames that the constitution is supposed to provide? Similarly with Nike, when things happen in the world, be it Colin Kaepernick, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what should Nike say and do based on how we see the world from the strategy that we've already established for ourselves. I mean, in their case, they took a stand on somebody taking the knee when the national anthem was being played. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, professional footballers in the UK started to do something similar and got booed by the fans. <laughs> because there's just a different cultural context. That's right. That's right. But do you think companies in general should, you know, Black Lives Matter... There are always opportunities to get involved and comment on things that happen. And I, you see it all the time. And people, it seems that very rarely do they get it right. Most of the time, they <laughs> just shoot themselves in the foot and they'd have been better off just not saying anything. Yeah. I'd say you should if you're convicted. You shouldn't if you feel this is just a marketing opportunity. Ah, uh, okay. Right? Like It's like anything else. For instance, like if someone says... Hey, Marcus, what do you think about, I don't know, oil spills in the Gulf? I go, I don't think they're good, but what's your point of view on it? And I go, okay. When I just started rattling some things that maybe I'm not terribly convicted about, like it matters to me, but I'm not terribly convicted. And then people go, oh, I don't like that you said that. And I go, well, I mean, <laughs> and if I you know, lost the farm because of something that I was half convicted about, and I mean, I care about oil spills, but like, that's not like sort of what drives me every day. That's not sort of like, it's not the thing that I'm willing to stand for if I'm the only one standing for it. And I think that's the idea of conviction, not brand purpose, not those sort of uh, hollow words, but conviction. I love the word conviction when we talk about the beliefs of a brand because conviction, it's active. You have to be convicted. You have to stand for it. 
even if you're the the only one. So I think in the case of brands, that when you feel convicted about a thing, those are things that you stand for. If you aren't convicted, you might as well close your mouth. And where do you see the difference between that sort of brand, the external manifestation of the business and the internal culture? Same, different? Well, I say that the idea is that the brand believes in something, stands for something, rather, stands for something. Because what is a brand? A brand, as the literature refers to, it's an identifiable signifier that conjures up thoughts and feelings in the minds of heart of people as it pertains to a company, a product, institution, organization, or person, right? So it's meant to conjure up things and signify something so that it conjures up things, realizing that emotions drive behavior. So the question becomes, can a brand means something out in the world and that meaning not be internalized, manifested, and demonstrated internally. And I say that's really, really hard. I mean, people try to do it all the time, but the people internally are just deeply cynical. They're like, oh, look at our marketing. It says we're a great place to work, but this is a shit company. Who are they trying to kid? That's right. So when there is incongruence between what is being displayed in the world and what's actually happening internally, these things don't hold up long and two, that becomes great cognitive dissonance. It's sort of like with us, right? If I project to the world that I am a vegan, but I eat burgers on the weekend, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I, I leave myself vulnerable to get exposed, right? Or at the very least, I have to do a great amount of cognitive acrobatics to help find some neutrality to get over the dissonance that comes from me not doing what I say I believe. And I think the same thing goes with companies, that if you don't do what you say you believe, the people who work at those companies go, rubbish. Yes. I'd say, I was just thinking, there's a few things that we've talked about that seem to be part of your, I guess, cultural playbook. So there's the, what is it you're convicted about? So like coming up with one or a short list of things that you are convicted about as an organization, even if you're the only company in the world that does it. In fact, well, I suppose it doesn't matter if you're the only company as long as people do, as it's something that other people might care about. Because if you're the only one and nobody cares, <laughs> then it's not really going to move anybody. That's right. And then you talked about, we talked a bit about story. So having some stories that we can tell about the organization and those convictions, because they're easy to retell. Maybe that sort of myth and legend stuff, you know, the where do we come from, origin stories, good, you know, Apple, HP in a garage, all of those types of things, you know, they can spread far and wide. And then how do you think about capturing the behaviors that you want, linking that to the behaviors that you want people to adopt? I think it starts with this, to your point. What do we believe? How do we see the world? What's our point of view in the world? What conviction do we hold that's informing all the things that we're doing? Not what we're doing, in the words of Simon Sinek, but why we do it. And because of what we believe, who we are, how we see the world, we find the people who see the world the way we do. Right? People who share the same ideology. Not the same people who, you know, who want their water in a can as opposed to a plastic bottle or people who want a closer shave. Not the people who are looking for value propositions, but people who share the same belief. Then the idea is once we identify those people, preach the gospel. We communicate that conviction in a way that activates the, the limbic system, the part of the brain associated with behavior and feelings. Stories, perfect at that, right? Not headlines and copy or taglines as much as the stories that those taglines capture, right? The vessel that those stories, those mythologies are housed. And we communicate to those people 
activating the emotional part of the brain. And those people will take action, not because of what you are, but because of who they are. And then they'll take action as a way of making their culture material, as a way of making their identity manifested. And then they go tell other people like themselves, because we are social animals by nature. We just can't help ourselves. Very good. And so you'll end up with, and what do you think about this? Uh, Certainly earlier on in my career, organizations were trying to do culture top down and actually an organizational culture, it's the sort of the average maybe of the teams in an organization. Yeah. I'd say that culture is negotiated and constructed. And when it feels hierarchical, the people at the bottom don't feel like they're a part of the negotiation process. So it becomes an obligation as opposed to a construction, right? And it's the people who were there in the early days of the organization, of the institution that get a say in the early construction of it. But just like the brand strategy, just like the constitution, as the company evolves or as its tenure grows and the world around the company evolves, those ethos, those beliefs, those convictions have to be updated or rather they have to be contextualized in the contemporary frame. And now the people in the organization today who just started, perhaps, they can be a part of the negotiation process by entering the discourse. The idea then is that you enable a conversation, you enable discourse that helps drive those outcomes by being very judicious about who you hire, that you hire people who share the same belief, who see the world similarly, that they may go about the world similarly, right? That's how we get diversity. They may navigate the world differently, but at its core, those people believe that every human body is an athlete. So when they come to work for the company, we start at that foundational anchor that binds us all together. And now we may want it to manifest differently, of course, because we are different, we're heterogeneous in nature, but those covalent bonds keep us true, keeps us plumb by our ability to have conversation based on a shared truth and ideology. What comes to mind is I've got a client down in Australia called Macquarie Telecom Group, and every week teams share their values-based successes of the previous week. Yeah. And that gets rolled up to a monthly board report. And then the organization pick out what it thinks are the best ones. So the social currency flows all the way through the organization and these all get shared. And you get to see what successes of the whole organization's had. But then the best ones get written up as a story by their chief story officer and shared and fed back in at onboarding so that even new people can be the hero of a story. But it creates this massive, you know, here are all the stories that you could read about success inside this business. And it makes that helping people navigate much, much easier for, for that organization. And it makes it more powerful than the CEO saying, this is what success looks like. Yeah, totally. And you are a part of authoring what success looks like by the stories that you tell, by the things that you experience. And we as an organization, we highlight those as a testament of what we collectively believe. And I love that example because you see this companies talk about when they venture or aspire to be more creative, have better innovation, Yeah, which we know what innovation requires an inherent amount of risk. And though companies may not be risk-loving, they definitely want more innovation. But if you look at some of the cultural characteristics of the company, we can see how the way the company behaves sort of erodes its ability to be more innovative. For instance, if the stories you tell in the company are all hero stories, oh, Marcus did an amazing job. Go Marcus. He killed it. He crushed it. Then 
for the people in the organization, they see that and go, okay, this is what the organization has negotiated as being success. It's about having reward, being rewarded for having reward, for winning. But an organization who wants to encourage risk, they would make the failure stories become the hero stories. Then Marcus tried a thing and he failed. What did you learn, Marcus? Like just a small change of the folklore of the mythology of the organization changes how the organization frames the world and ultimately how it shows up in the world. And that's super powerful. And those are material changes that an organization can make right now today, as opposed to sort of, you know, overhauling everything and undoing everything. There are these small little micro moments that create uh, levers that organizations, institutions, companies, and the like can manipulate. Why well, was it manipulate? They have agency to change in an effort to have a greater change in how the collective works. Marcus, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Uh, you know, I wish I knew about people. I thought I knew about people. <laughs> As an engineer, I didn't take any humanities courses, but I thought I knew the human condition. And it wasn't until I started studying the behavioral sciences that I realized who we are, the mechanisms uh, that govern who we are beneath the surface, the underlying physics of humanity. And the more I understand about people, not only am I a better practitioner and academic, I feel like I'm a better human. At least I try to be. And other than for the culture, which people should listen to or read, whichever is their preferred method of consumption, fantastic book. What else do you recommend people pick up and plow through? So I'm reading two things right now. There's one that I think is just a fun read that you should check out. It's called The Kingdom of Prep, The Rise and Almost Fall of J. Crew. I've been doing just sort of recreationally reading a lot about the Ivy aesthetic, the preppy clothes aesthetic, and how it came to be, how it's lasted as long as it's lasted, what it means in the minds of people and the, the companies, the brands that were part of shaping this cultural adornment that has sort of presence in so many different cultures. I think it's just fascinating. The thing that I'm reading intensely and interrogating is a reading that I've done before by Gay de Bourges called The Society of the Spectacle. It's a terribly difficult read, but I think it's so powerful that it was written over 50 years ago, and it's almost prophetic about the world we live in now, in that we indulge in the appearance of life as opposed to the experience of life. It's a deep way to end. If I were to put a bow on it, I mean, that's sort of what culture aspires to do. It aspires to signal what is, such that people who are part of a community, a tribe, a collective, they too know how to navigate the world. And the better we communicate these things implicitly and explicitly, the more likely we are to find social solidarity among ourselves. Marcus, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. 
There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. 